Well, here we are. We're back with another AmeriCorps alumni on AmeriCorps Connections. Um, for those of you who are new to the channel, uh, my name is Nikki Fiacco, and I'm an AmeriCorps alumni from Volunteer Maryland, which is a state and national program. Um, and I've had all kinds of different roles within the national service spectrum from executive director of a program and executive director of a commission uh, for a, a two states. Um, but my passion and my love is to talk with AmeriCorps alumni and really understand what they're up to now and if their service year had an impact um, on what they're doing. I'm also super curious about their journey and uh, how they got to where, they're, where they are. And I'm also very curious if they even knew they were signing up for AmeriCorps, because <laughs> I certainly did not. But I'm very happy that I did, uh, that I did the program. So um, Again, super excited to be connecting with another AmeriCorps alumni today. Oh, before I before I start, I do have to say shout out to Dan Medivere, who uh, from Time or Money Productions, who um, has helped me with the operations of this podcast. If it wasn't from him, if you're listening to this on like Spotify or something, you would not have access to it because I didn't know how to do that. He did. So thank you, Dan. Um, okay. So here we are with another alumni. Um, we had today, we have Sana Shake, And like I said, um, she is a TFA alumni and um, we're just going to jump in and, and learn like Sana, like how did you find AmeriCorps and did you choose the journey? Um, and let's, let's just learn about um, your, your journey. So where did it start? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Nikki, for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today. And uh, I actually didn't find AmeriCorps. AmeriCorps found me. Um, I went to Berkeley for undergrad, and there are recruitment officers from Teach for America that come, and they try to encourage folks to be part of the organization. I had a friend of a friend refer me. Um, that's how I met the person who was recruiting. And she talked about Teach for America, talked about its why. And I very serendipitously found myself in Teach for America. And it really spoke to me as an organization because I myself came to the United States for an education. So it really solidified the fact that like my passion is helping others, working with others who don't have the same opportunities and resources as I do. So the mission really called to me. Uh, it really fell into my lap. And then I spent two years teaching in Baltimore City. Uh, which really kind of precipitated my entire career in education and policy. Now, did you did you start in Baltimore in Maryland, and then because you were in Berkeley, yeah. so that's not that's not Maryland. I know that that's yeah. California because no, I'm no, from I, California. <laughs> I literally went from the farthest point of one coast to the other. So yeah. I uh, there was like a selection process where they ask you where you would like to be placed. And for me, I really wanted to be in an urban area and I wanted to teach big kids. Um, so I was really excited about using like Socratic dialogue and debate in my classroom. So I went from Cal to Baltimore and I actually still remember wow. uh, I was like 21 years old and the Institute at that year was in Philadelphia. And so I remember like being 21, 22 years old and like packing all my stuff in this big duffel bag and just kind of like waiting at a restaurant the night before Institute was going to start. And I was like, my parents either like have the most utmost faith in me or they're, I don't, I don't really know what, what the other option is, but it was yeah. just like this really surreal, scary moment where, you know, a new chapter is starting, but you have no idea what to anticipate. 
Um, and so it was just like this poignant moment of like, I know that I'm going to be learning a lot, but I don't know what to expect. And here we are like 13 years later and virtually every single part of the activity that I did or work that I did or volunteering that I did connected somehow to that formative two years in the classroom. Really? Yes. Yes. That, so to go from, so when you're doing Teach for America for folks that maybe don't know, can you just briefly explain what that training is and, and kind of what that program looks like? Of course. So Teach for America is a nonprofit organization. It's national and it's a two-year commitment. And this two-year commitment is it's geared towards undergrads from high achieving institutions, but really anyone can apply. And in these two years, you're either in an urban area or a rural area, really helping those who don't necessarily have the same resourcing as high income areas. Mm -hmm. And after the two-year commitment, you're more than welcome to stay in the classroom. A lot of folks do. They stay in the classroom, stay in education. But a lot of the folks that come down the pipeline are not they can be education majors, but generally aren't. Like they're folks who are interested in law or wanna be physicians or wanna pursue an MBA later. So I actually had no background in education. I was a political science and Near Eastern studies major, a minor in global poverty and practice. Um, I wanted to either go in corporate law or I wanted to work for the United Nations. Like I was very much inclined towards those spaces. And um, after Teach for America, there's a really robust alumni network, and like alumni resources. We kind of become this part of a larger collective. And so after Teach for America, I coached teachers for a year within the organization and really started my career and interest in policy. So then I started my PhD, finished it in 2020. And all of the experiences I had in the interim, I had a connection with the TFA, person, a TFA recommended me to another organization. So in some capacity, it was like that TFA hive, that ecosystem that got me to where I'm working now in EdTech. Like a total to uh, a total through line. Yeah. Um, I, I interviewed, I think you and um, Christy Heine are the only TFA members that I've interviewed on here. I have to have to go back. Um, but she mentioned the same thing that there was this, this after service like connection and mentoring and making sure everybody lands in a, a place where they want to, which not a ton of programs do that. I mean, I think city, I think the bigger programs like city year, I've also heard has a really good offboarding program. Um, but that's not necessarily the uh, experience of, of a lot of AmeriCorps members. And that's actually kind of the genesis of me wanting to pull together this podcast. I'm like, where are we? And like, let's help the current members like get to like wherever it is that they want, they want to go and support them along the way. So, so after your service year, you, um, you actually worked at TFA for a couple of years, right? I did. So I worked at TFA for a year and, um, in that year I supported core members in the classroom. So at that time, the structure may or may not have changed. This was a bit of time ago, but what happened at the time was as a instructional teacher in the classroom, you had a coach come in from Teach for America to observe you, provide you with support, insight, like how your classroom is going, whether you want any other instructional support or resourcing, whether you know you might have had a really bad day. They kind of served as like a therapist, coach, <laughs> interventionist. Yeah. 
you know, all of those pieces in one and I loved it. Like I really enjoyed working with people, coaching them, seeing the growth in the classroom and just seeing how, how powerful an educator is in terms of Mm. shaping the mindsets and behaviors of kids. Like I still remember when I was growing up, like when a teacher was like, you did a great job, or this was a really well-written paper. I can see you doing this you really start believing that you can. And um, I was really lucky because when I was growing up, my parents are, were and are very, very supportive. Like they, they really wanted me to do well in school, but I really feel like it's my parents' support and the exceptional teachers I had believing in me and my ability to do great things that has allowed me to have faith in myself. And Nikki, it's so interesting because there's been a lot of conversations on imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. of like, you know, not knowing what you're doing, like how you have to pretend to like learn. I never had imposter syndrome. I was like, I need, yes, I never had it. Even as a kid, I was just like, you know, I need, well, when I came to schooling, when I came to school, I was like, I just need someone to give me a chance and I'll prove myself. And that type of confidence you you can really get from an educator, like seeing that you have purpose and you can really accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. That was, it's funny when you said, I never had that. I'm like, that's not where I thought she was going to go with that. Um, <laughs> I swear, I think I, every shirt I wear is like, I have imposter syndrome. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm it's, it's a funny thing. It's a, it's a funny sort of thing that I teeter with with imposter syndrome I mean even with this podcast I'm like do people are people even interested and then I get a a a slew of messages that was like that was the best episode or whatever and I think you reached out to me um about some episode or something and and we just wanted to chat um so that was that and and to your point about educators um I mean I can still remember those those I still remember my um, first grade teacher, Mrs. Smith. Like, I just remember her just having so much faith in me that um, I was like, wait, I, but I can't read this. Like, why are you, I'm not a good student. Um, but yeah, that's, um, I wanted to circle back to what you had mentioned about like the coaching and and kind of maybe link it to some of the stuff that you're doing now, because you mentioned to see how that you know when you were doing the coaching you noticed how much of an influence the educator had on the way that the folks in the classroom were experiencing school or whatever um do you think that like that was kind of a little uh like pre what you're doing now noticing like the individual teachers in the classroom and like their strengths and their differences and and how their differences were strengths. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like kind of that first glimpse of what we were talking about before we started recording of being able to celebrate the differences of people instead of like, you're supposed to be like this. I love that question. And I think like before even diving into that, I know what it feels like to be different because I always was different. So it's not, it's not like an abstract concept I have to understand or learn. It's like a feeling that I had knowing that I was not from this country, that I couldn't really speak English well, that I didn't look like my peers, that I didn't have like a Anglo name, like my name is Arabic. And there weren't a lot of people that looked like me in a lot of the spaces I wanted to be in. So feeling different and feeling not Mm. part of the crowd has been my narrative my whole life. 
And it's not a fun feeling to have, um, especially when you're learning the language. Like mm -hmm. I, now I find so much power and joy and beauty and storytelling, because I think that if you have a loud enough voice um, and if you have the right way of amplifying that voice, you really can be motivational to anyone, right? Like you can change the way that a child looks at themselves. You can change the way that a peer feeler feels about themselves. Like you really can use your voice to amplify change. And I think that the key elements I had was seeing difference, being from, from California, being from Berkeley, going all the way to Baltimore, navigating with people I've never really navigated with, and being so young in age, realizing that, yes, there are markers of fundamental difference, right? Like we might have a different skin color, we might have a different religion, we might speak differently, we might have different views in the world. But at the end of the day, if you show up as who you are and if you show up authentically where someone wants you to be not where you think that they should be but where they want you to be and if you show up in that like really genuine way you can build relationships with people and it really goes back to my earlier point about how so many of the opportunities I've received has been through that zenith of TFA and it's like very serendipitous and beautiful in so many ways because it's like the relationships I built in TFA realizing that relationships can be a bridge no matter how we look like mm -hmm. and then recognizing that as we move through like a really fraught ecosystem like what I work in now is very fundamentally like named as diversity equity inclusion but it really is about bringing people together allowing people to to feel authentically themselves so that at the end of the day, the bottom line of a company is they want talent to stay. And talent is going to stay if they feel like they're accepted, if they feel like there's growth and they, if they feel like they're valued people. So I think that within the spaces I'm now, which is you know human resources, organizational change and transformation, it's ultimately like, what are the needs of the people? What are they saying? And are we really listening to those needs and amplifying those needs? And creating change within the company that aligns to those needs and values. And I know there's like so much talk and augmentation about AI, and I think mm -hmm. it's a great vehicle. I think it'll be a great supplement, particularly in the tech and tech space, but the white collar service, the glo white glove service of sorts that people can provide mm -hmm. and like that. I don't think that can ever be functionally changed or shifted. You need good people to do the good work. And, um, that's a, that whole experience is just all stemmed from TFA. Mm, that's so, I love hearing that, like, again, that through line from your service year and, and you kind of touched on some of the things that you're doing now. Um, let's dive into that, you know, and, and I, I think that, I think the richness, I, you know, I always like to give the service year, you know, how did you get here and how did we connect and we share a similar but very different experience through AmeriCorps. Um, and I think that's super important for us to connect. Um, but I'm I'm so interested in in you know what you're what you're doing now. And let's talk about like how how you use strategies to truly listen to those employees or staff. I'm not sure what term you use. And then what are some of the things that you've um, implemented to keep those keep the talent in place because onboarding folks is expensive. <laughs> you know, I, I heard hire, slow, fire, fast. 
No, and Nikki, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. Like finding good talent, having them stay, like that is, those are the questions that a lot of people in culture, officers, institutions, organizations always ask. And so I'd love to like backtrack a bit and just like provide a little bit of context because I know yes. not, not everyone is familiar, but I work uh, currently my content specialty, so to speak, is diversity, equity, inclusion. And ultimately the tools that you need beyond the content knowledge is how do you decipher in a space what the problem is? Because there's a lot mm. of white noise about what exactly are we solving for? So it's like first identifying the problem and then identifying like, what is the impact that you want to make? Like, what is the why of whatever program or initiative you're going to develop to solve for said problem? And then the third piece is who are you going to have buy-in from? Like, who are the key stakeholders that need to be like, all right, this is fine. You can push through. Um, how will you then implement said action or strategy? And then how will you assess? And mm -hmm. so that's kind of like a five piece arc of like what we do systematically when we think about the role of diversity, equity, inclusion, at least in the work that I do, because the work that I do really oscillates. It's in recruitment, retention, attrition, um, DEI officers, really, if you ask anyone, are subject matter experts with a lot of hats. They work with the talent team. They work with the legal team. They work with the comms team. Um, so their role is a boundary spanner. They kind of function where the needs of the company are. Um, but ultimately, it's to solve challenging problems of how do we create and retain a robust and diverse place and one that really seeks to augment the values and voices of the people. And what I've noticed is it's the work, but the people are become like your friends. Um, you know, mm -hmm. they're people that you see every day. And it's not simply like a textbook case or a case study. It's like, these are people that are coming in with their stories, their lived experiences, their intersectionalities of their identity. Like, they, you know, they might be caregiving for their parents. They might have multiple kids during COVID. You know, they might be um, navigating through different sort of um, neurodivergent challenges. So like people are coming to spaces with a lot already. And as uh, as a as a subject matter expert, I can, you know, come in and talk about the problem and identify the solution. But sometimes it's just like, how are you being there for someone? How are you really just listening to them? Mm. And how are you meeting them where they are? Because sometimes that person doesn't need for you to solve a problem for them. Mm. That person just wants you to listen or they're having a bad day or they just need like a friend or a thought partner or, or someone to guide them. So I think it's like that type of EI, it's that type of EI, AI can't do, right? Like that mm -hmm. yeah. assessment, AI can't be like, oh, let me diagnose. Um, and that type of sort of navigation is really contingent on the person coming in. And so mm -hmm. I claim that to be my superpower, which is how do I assess what the problem is and how do I meet people where they are in a way that's authentic to me mm -hmm. and um, I may not know everything but I know enough to know that it doesn't matter what you say it matters how you make someone feel and mm -hmm. someone who's felt you know unwelcome or unwanted in so many places in my life like I just never want to have anyone else feel similarly to me yeah. Yeah. I have heard through communications that people will forget what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And, um, and, and it's funny through my experience of, 
of employment and working for people. Um, the majority of the time I'm learning how I don't want to treat people. I mean, it's like, I, I should write a book, you know? Yeah, I mean, you should, and I will read, I will read the book and I will be part of the book club because you're absolutely right. You know, yeah. and like, oftentimes it's like when you're the most vulnerable, right? Like I, like I just immediately think I have a four month old, um, you might hear as like who's in the back, but I also have twins. They're five years old. So I'm a mother of three very young children. And I don't think there's the any more vulnerable part than when you are expecting and you're about to like have your child or children, because there are so many things outside the scope of your control. Like a lot of us are overachievers. We like having control in our lives. And I just remember like the way that the doctors and particularly the nurses, like how the nurses were caring for you, like how they care for you. Like I will Mm -hmm. never forget like the type of care I received at that point in time, because I was physically not capable and like emotionally taking care of two little ones. And so that type of goodness, like you just want to like emanate out to the world in, in as many ways as you considerably can. Um, that's like something that will, like, that's something you want to emanate out to other people and in like, in as in, in your daily ordinary relationships as much as you can. Yeah. So I'll share a pregnancy story with you, um, which this is going to be funny that this is actually going to be public. But um, so when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, I worked for a gym in um, in Michigan and it was a small gym and I had worked there before I was pregnant. And um, I, I let him know, you know, a couple, maybe a month or so into my pregnancy, uh, maybe it's two months. I don't know. Um, and he called me in one day and he was like, Hey, you know, let's go grab some coffee, which he's never done before. And, um, he fired me for being pregnant. Like he literally wrote me a letter and said, and and this is where it gets even better. And yes, I know it's illegal. And I took care of that. Trust me. I, uh, trust me. And he put it in writing. He was like, so he's, he, I can't, okay. I can get this out. It it's, it was horrible. Cause we were talking about vulnerability, right? Like here I am pregnant and then I was fired and I was fired for being pregnant. So my mind was like, did I do something wrong? You know, like it was weird, but he referred me to a gym for people who are paraplegic with disabilities. He said, somebody in your, in your condition would work well at this gym. And I I, I know your mouth, like, you're just like, what? You're like, how, like, so again, another experience of how I never, ever want to treat somebody. If I'm going to fire them, I'm not going to take them out to coffee. You know, I'm just going to be like, these are the reasons that I'm not going to fire people for being pregnant. It was crazy. It was the weirdest thing um, that I ever experienced, but I did actually end up working for the gym and um, I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but what I learned at that gym was so amazing. Like people who could not feel their legs they would put them on the leg extension machine with weights because their their muscles are atrophying because they're not moving and they would move it for them and they would have them visualize moving their legs and so they were trying to like build it was it was fantastic it actually ended up being a really great couple of months working there but um back to the vulnerability thing and not and and showing up for people like it it yes and, and somebody else on a podcast mentioned that like something that they learned 
was you just never know where people are coming from or what happened to them earlier in that day or the night before. And I think that we're in a place now where we need to, we really need to lean into that. Like the eighties and nineties of massive hustle <laughs> and breaking your brain is like over. There are so many pieces of your story that <laughs> there could be like a podcast on I know. That wrong in that interaction. Um, yes. It's just like mind boggling to me. That's so confusing. And like, yes, you know, it's completely illegal. Yeah. But you know, Nikki, like there's like our like legal like laws and ramifications and policies at play. But like, there is so much research on like, if you're a working mom, there, you know, there will be a bias. There is biases in the way that people perceive you or your ability or capability. And like, it's, it's just really, really important to like not forget yourself and all of the white noise of the world. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, like, especially with all of the layoffs that have been happening in recent memory and past year, like there are so many people that are just fantastic, phenomenal. And they're dealing with such like traumatic economic circumstances for the first time ever and it's like so important to like not get lost in the process of like work is your identity because at the mm -hmm. end of the day your family is the cornerstone of your family your health your faith your values because you know everything else is just like extrinsic like there is an expectation of success but it can change in the blink of an eye yeah even know it is that something that you you know i so is it like that understanding of like decoupling yourself with your work? Like I was, I, I there was a time where I didn't know if I was still working at 10 o'clock at night because I was doing something for a service organization or, or not working. I don't know. It was like, I had this hard like identity thing. So would you say it's something that like you start to learn later in life where it's like, there's actually these, these things are my most important values because I feel like now that I'm a little bit further along in my journey, it's easier for me to like have better boundaries around like my, my values and just like, like you said, things can change at any time with, with employment. So rather than wrapping ourselves up into like our identity, like, is that something that we can train people early on? Can we help these young AmeriCorps members? <laughs> I think that's such a good question, Nikki. And I think so much of it is used to your point exactly, like time and wisdom is the best experience. And at 21 years old and at 31 years old or at 41 years old, I'm gonna think very, very differently about where I am in the world, what season I am in my life. And I just, I, I'm just gearing into my mid thirties. And the way that I think about problems or challenges or interactions are very, very different because I think a lot of AmeriCorps members at least from my experience, a lot of Teach for America members, AmeriCorps members are go-getters. They're scrappy, they're curious, they want to change the yep. world. And changing the world is very difficult and very incremental and very, very slow, right? Like there's like the adage of, you want to go change the world, start with yourself, right? Because yep. change is very hard and it's, it's not as imminent or immediate as one would think. And throughout my 20s, I was so adamant on changing the world. And I, I, in some ways thought that the TFA experience would allow me to do that. And I realized how many systems are working against educators to be successful in the classroom. 
And then I got interested in policy, like maybe macro policy could help us just determine what to change for the world. And then I realized that data is perceived differently by different people, like policy briefs are analyzed differently. You need to have different stakeholders that are important at the table to actually listen. And so at every chapter, like my value, my North Star was like positive change, like be a voice for the voiceless, like amplify storytelling. And there was like some really hard learnings I had to learn along the way of it's really not that easy. But I think every time, like what would give me a sense of calm and a sense of perspective was my my family, my parents. Mm-hmm. At the time I wasn't married. So my parents, my faith, my my friends who would support me unconditionally. Like even if I lost everything, like my friends are those who I know will be there for me. And like now in my 30s as a mom of three and living across the coast from my immediate family I I always have to think through like if I lost everything what would be the most important and it's like not my career it's not like fancy titles it's like my kids and my husband and like that's mm-hmm. who I'm living for but I think I'm also at this stage more than a career I feel like I've also tried to prioritize myself and I've prioritized myself to being like I can't be everything for everyone like mm-hmm. I'm not going to please everyone um, so because of that, like, I just have to take a step back and really just prioritize myself and like my own boundaries of like, who can I give to, and who can I not give to, and like who I want to have in my circle and who might be better away from my circle. And we can all be cordial, but, you know, we have to understand like who will be best equipped for us to be the best version of ourselves too. Yeah. I, there's two things um, that I think that I just want to pull out. Number one, the thing about change, changing yourself. What I've found is that like along the lines of how I'm saying, you know, I'm going to write a book about how not to treat people. Um, when I would think introspectively about like, you know, what was going on with the situation and make it about learning about me and not what the other person did or, you know, I perceived them doing, then the different people showed up around me, right? Because, because I was changing myself. And I feel like when you start to intrinsically change, um, just different people pop up the folks that you want to be around or the, the folks that you need to get to the next whatever opportunity or whatever it is, they show up because you've changed and then collectively, and then that kind of builds out. And then the other thing I wanted to say was how you so eloquently, and I feel like I could talk, if I, if I'm having a bad day, I feel like I could call you up on a zoom because you have such a calming (laughs) energy and I'm all over the place. Um, But I love love you. (laughs) I, I I can tell you every single interaction, mostly jobs that I've had with people, they're like, and this is our Energizer Bunny Nikki. And I'm like, yep. I mean, it's I my Twitter handle, it says I'll never be more or less of who I am. I've always showed up the same. It's always been the same. I was the mascot of my high school. Um, that was super fun. But um, the other thing I wanted to point out was how you said, um, you started to notice the 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 blocks it within like how the system's not set up for educators and then we, maybe we need policy but policy is interpreted differently and i like that to me also is fascinating when i got into state government i was like it's really hard to do americorps in state 
in state government. State government is not set up. I mean, I was in constituent services with the Hogan administration in Maryland for about eight months. And that was crazy. Like the systems that folks that are already like on the struggling, the, oh my God, the hoops that they have to go through just to get SNAP benefits, just to get, you know, it's, it was crazy. Um, and, and that office actually really helped me understand like the systemic, the systemic issues that we have where the system's just not built for everybody. I'm not going to say it's built against people. I'm just going to say it's really not built for everybody. Nikki, that's such a good point. I think so much of like my thought process of even like simple things, like getting your car fixed, right? Like, or navigate or getting a mortgage, right? They talk thing and plus more, uh, doing your taxes, finding your kids daycare, um, going to school, finding a job, like computer literacy. I always think about as we're like navigating all these hats. I talk to my husband and partner all the time. It's like, how do people do it? Like how can people who don't have the resources do it? It's like this, the system is so hard for folks who are like educated and know the networks and know the system. It's so hard to balance it all. I just can't imagine not knowing the language. And in so many ways, when, you know, when I think about why TFA, why this journey starting um, and what kind of to our conversation about values and who we are and why we are the way we are, I don't think that it could be any harder to like immigrate to this country and figure it out. And that in so many ways, my parents did. Like I think of my mom and she did not know English. You know, she came to America with two small kids, did not know how to drive, did not know the systems. Um, and she's living with her in-laws and that in and of itself has different politics, wow. right? Like you're living with people with different ways of looking at the world than you do from a very conservative culture. And, you know, she managed to navigate through it all with such grace and like health problems and, you know, fiscal problems and job problems and all of that. So it really reminds me like if it, like I come from ancestors and I come from the lineage of people who are so strong and who have just faced so much challenge and conflict, but stood, stood in face of it all. And like, that really motivates me to like, continue to do that. And Nikki, I have to say, I hear my son, like in the background. So can I just one second, just like on him, make sure everything is okay. Absolutely. Okay. I will be right back. Okay. All's well that he has his food. So that is so just, it is so distracting. Oh my gosh. I, you know, the time, so, so I, I would have done things differently if I had more information about parenting. Cause I didn't, when the, trying to get them to sleep through the night, you know, sometimes you have to let them just kind of cry it out because it's, they're just kind of used to getting up or whatever. But I'm telling you those cries, like I would lay there with my eyes open, just be like, can I get up now? Can I get up now? You know, it's like, no. Oh my gosh, Nikki, it's so hard. I mean, I just like, as we were talking about like systematic things that are hard, like just being a mom, right. Just being a caretaker, being a mom and taking care of like a little being as on like sleeps next to us in his little bassinet. But I promise you, he like sneezes in the middle of the night and I'm up like, I'm just yes. you know, you're so, you're so in tune into them. Yes. Um, yeah, no motherhood in its in and of itself is its own journey, and I'm 
so upset my own mom because I remember when we were thinking of like expanding our family and she was just like Sana motherhood's so easy your hair grows thicker like <laughs> you're gonna have glowing skin and like lo and behold I like felt so haggard and it was just so difficult for me and but you know everyone has their own story that was her story yeah. different than mine but we all yeah. made it through so all's well. yeah I love it I love it we could probably share stories about being a mom we'll do that on another podcast <laughs> oh I would love that I, like we can we can talk you know mom shop the whole time love it well and my kids are older so that's a whole other topic it's like it, it's just weird because you move into more of an advisor sort of role kind of but then they want you to be the mom too and you're like I'm so confused <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to show up for you I'm nervous about my daughter into her teenage years like I am mentally preparing for that season I'm not there yet I still have I still have a bit of time I'm gonna give myself yeah, yeah. well my daughter and I have had a great relationship through her teenage years so I'm uh, sure you'll be fine so you. anyways this was great um let's I want to make sure that you're able to talk about some of anything that you wanted to make sure we brought up on the podcast or highlight things that either you're doing um, or, you know, I just want to make sure that uh, because I feel like we could go in so many different directions. Uh, we could focus on DEI, which is what you do like on a daily basis of, of what are the, you know, I don't know what are the best practices or what are some resources, but, you know, I want to make sure that we're also touching on what message do you want to get out about just, I guess, you and your experience through AmeriCorps, but also life, you know, your, your TED talk was super compelling. And, and you've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, you're, um, you have a different experience than a lot of people. And, and I think that's important. And so I want to make sure that we cover what you need and you want to cover. I love that. I think that one thing that I really want to outline and highlight is the fact of giving people chances. Um, mm. That for me really is like true to my core because I I think that in so many ways Teach for America and AmeriCorps is powerful because it gives people a chance to do service and understand a lived experience different than theirs. And this the premise of the program is to give folks chances who've been like historically marginalized. So I think that's really powerful. But I think like giving folks chances even if they're different than you, is something that deeply resonates to me like, throughout my career because my arc is very unique in the sense that I've done a bit of policy, a bit of higher ed, you know, a bit of operations, a bit of learning and development. And at the end of the day, someone has to look at me and be like, I believe in Sana. I want to mentor her. I want to advocate for her. I want to sponsor her. I want to uplift her. And the more that we do that for other people, particularly people that we wouldn't otherwise be friends with, I, for me, in my core, is what the spirit of AmeriCorps and its impact in my life has been all about. Um, and I think that as parents now, like it's all very much of an arc, it's a mosaic of sorts, because as we are now like cultivating the new generation of leaders, like I, you know, I still feel in my you know, I, I joke with my friends, like aesthetically, I feel like I'm 95 years old, but like internally, <laughs> right? Like internally, you're still like, you're still at the core is the same of the person that has had all these seasons of life. And as we are raising our kids, I really want them to be the best versions of us. And, you know, how do they mm -hmm. do that? They're not going to be 
doing that by getting X or Y degree. Like that's not why you're proud of your kid. It's, you know, are they are they kind to others? Do they work well with others? Are they critical thinkers? Do they, you know, solve for challenging problems that are impacting our humanity? You know, do they live with dignity? Do they have hope? And I just feel mm-hmm. like all of those values, like this values oriented work is something that we can't forget with the hype of like hustle culture or mm-hmm. like let's go up the socioeconomic ladder or keeping up with the Joneses or even influencer culture, which I have, there's pros and cons to that in so many ways, because you're seeing this veneer of perfection all the time on all your social media channels, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, the million in between, like that's not real life. Um, And for me, it's like so, so important is like giving people chances not believing in the hype and the white noise and doing it in a way that allows us to authentically show up for our future generations and like allows them to cultivate them to be the best that they can be is so, so important for me personally. I love that you said giving people chances. That was one of my favorite things. And it goes right back to AmeriCorps. I mean, that that is why we have to have this podcast. Um, when I was director for Volunteer Maryland, I was involved in um, vetting the AmeriCorps members and um, helping like figuring out what because we placed them all across the state of Maryland we had like 30 35 partnerships and so we're, they, there were nonprofits and schools that we placed people in and I mean I remember um, a gentleman ha- who applied and he was a stay-at-home dad he had his law degree but his he he said to me he's like my wife makes more money so it makes sense for me to stay home with the kids so he had stayed home for the past like 15 years or something and he just wanted to get into get back into it and i had a hard time placing him and i was like there's no way i'm going to find i'm going to find a place for you because your journey is going to start here like this is going to be what you need. And it, and it happened several times where I saw something in somebody and the sites were like, no, we don't want somebody like that. We don't want somebody like that. And I'm like, then they're just going to come serve in my office because this person has, and every single time I've been, I, I was just so tenacious and I'm like, I'm going to find them a site. The, the AmeriCorps member just blossomed and the site like ends up hiring them or whatever. Um, so I just think that's really if, if anybody doesn't get anything from this podcast, giving people a chance and looking beyond, you know, their appearance or how they, how you perceive them to show up. Um, we, that's where we are right now with humanity anyways. Like if you're not acting in that way, then you're just going to drop off the planet. <laughs> not really. I am not a flat earther. <laughs> I love how you have to say that, Nikki. I know. <laughs> I feel like that's indicative of so many pieces. There's one thing that you said earlier that like really resonated, which is you don't know what people are going through and you you have no idea what type of baggage that they're coming in with a meeting with, or maybe why they were snappy to you that day mm-hmm. or why they're not smiling. And you know, where women yes. are told, like if we're not smiling, then we're not bringing our best selves. So, you know, there's like so many layers to that. I just like vividly remember that uh, when the twins were born the the first year with like minimal sleep I just you know barely remember like I remember like bits and pieces <laughs> but that first year was truly a haze and I remember we were like navigating I like this is like such a key experience in my life we were 
navigating to their first birthday party. It was a huge birthday. We had invited tons of family and friends. I think that there was maybe 150 people on their first birthday. I wanted to truly celebrate that we had reached this point. And so my parents, they always come up from California to all these big events we do every year, whether it's for the twins or for our little or for an anniversary, we always kind of do a big event to celebrate. And um, there was a wedding. There was like a series of weddings that year. There was like 10 weddings that year. And my dad was a few days after the twins' birthday was like, I'm not feeling particularly well. And my husband, he used to work at the hospital. He was like, oh, like, you know, what's wrong? My dad's like, Mike, you know, was explaining to him the symptoms. I was out of the house at the time because I was like doing errands. And um, Rehan, he was like, you need to go just, you need to go to the hospital. Because I think he wow. knew that he was having heart attack symptoms or a heart attack. And lo and behold, he was, was and had a heart attack. So here's my dad on the opposite side of the country here to like provide me support. My twins are one. So they're still very small. There's a slew of weddings. So people are just in their own head. They're, they're excited about their own exciting milestones. And I am like going through utter devastation because it's my dad. It's, it was the first time it was, it's, he had never had a history of it before. Yeah. So I remember feeling just so torn and uh, devastated and people didn't know that, like, because, you know, you know, only if you ask, if you truly ask someone what they're going through, because no one's going to pour out their soul to you. If you're like, Hey, how are you? Gloss it over, keep it moving. And my friends picked up on it because they were like, you know, you sound a little distant, like, is everything okay? And like, they like pried it out of me. But part of my personality is just like, you know, to your earlier question on doing hard work on inclusivity and bringing yourself in the process like for better or for worse I can compartmentalize where I'm like this is you know therapists might not say it's the best approach but that's (laughs) you know I am a very effective compartmentalizer I'm like we're not going to think about it we're going to keep it moving and it was like one of the very few times in my life where I couldn't not think about it like it was very much in my face my dad was in the hospital and that moment that series of moments made me really realize like who was in my circle and who wasn't like who Mm -hmm. really will will be there for me check in on me support me in a moment of just utter grief and no one could tell based on how I was showing up that all of that was happening in the background and I think that that is just an indication of yes you don't know what someone is going through but unless you intentionally ask, unless right. you intentionally there for them, unless you show up in a way that's meaningful, like you're never going to know, like you're really never going to know what that person's all about. And so I just try to give that grace to people. Like, you don't, it's not about you. Maybe it's about them. Mm-hmm. Moving. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's super personal. And, and that had to have been so scary and, and it is, it's like, when that's like total opposite ends of the spectrum of, of emotions, right? Like celebrating one year of life of these two humans that you literally brought into this world and worrying about your father, like talk about split. Like that is, that's serious splitness. Um, yeah. So we are, I, I do want to uh, kind of bring this in for a landing. Cause I feel like we 
just go from topic to topic. Um, and it's just, this has been such a rich conversation and, you know, your reflection of, of, and the through line of TFA and what you're doing now, um, you know, what, is there anything else, any last sort of tidbits that you, you, you did say giving people a chance is kind of like your biggest message. Um, but is there anything else you want to share? And then, you know, I have the big question of like, what's next for us alumni? And um, yeah, so anything else you want to finish up sharing and then we'll just see what 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 Sana feels about this alumni group. I do. I mean, I you know, there's so many pieces of the conversation that are so rich, like so rich and enriching where it's like there's the part of our career arc that makes us who we are today, right? There's the bucket of different seasons they help us shape and shift into what our values are. Then it's like the second bucket of like, what moves us? How do we connect with people deeply? And how do we get to know them regardless of the fact that they might look different and giving people chances. And like the third bucket of like, you won't know people unless you ask them intentionally about what they're going through, why they're going through it. I think like the biggest piece in all of this is knowing yourself. And like knowing mm. yourself deeply and willing to say things that you intentionally and passionately want to say yes to, but also stepping back and saying no to what you don't want to. I think in like the desire of wanting to keep on doing better than our former season, we think more is better mm. and we keep on doing more and more. And I feel like this insight I'm giving to myself more than anything else, <laughs> right? Like we want to be overachievers in talk in, therapy. Yeah, it's talk therapy. I'm like talking to myself right now. And um, ultimately, I mean, what is going to be enough, right? Like what is enough? Um, there was like this really beautiful quote, Michelle Obama was in an interview and she was asked, you know, what her, her analysis was. I, may, I may, might not be paraphrasing this correctly, but, you know, what is her analysis of interacting with such big names and you know, really wealthy people and donors. And she's like, you know, at the end of the day, you have to find that you are enough. That if the titles go away, if the aspirations and inspirations go away, if wanting to interact with people from different seasons goes away and you're just left with your thoughts alone, yeah, you be happy and content with the person that you have become. And I just go back to that in the core. And that's, for me, why my family is so important, because when all of the white noise settles, right, because one day you might be on top of the world, the other, like, social might cancel you and you'd be done, right? Like, so um, I just think that grounding yourself in that really gives perspective and really gives meaning to, like, what life should be about. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I that's a, such a, great way of closing and it it's if, if people can get what you're saying if people can truly understand and get what you're saying you're free you like there is such a freeness of just being like what i have today is what i have today and and i and i'm okay with that and and truly like believing and understanding that is um so if you l rewind that and listen to what Sana just said. Because <laughs> people like you to balance people like me have in the world. So, so funny. I love that. And that's uh, yeah. Okay. So big question. We have one point, no, 1.2 million. Yeah. We have over a million uh, AmeriCorps alumni who have gone through the program. 
and I always like to say I'm interviewing a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. So far, I have almost 30 interviews. So that's great. I'm on my way. But what do you see from what do you see that like, what do you see for this AmeriCorps alumni group? Locally, nationally, regionally, one at a time. I think of AmeriCorps very much as a movement. I, like, I, I think it's a movement of people who are anchored in collective action and want to do good for the world. And I know that there is a conversation on intent versus impact, you know, regularly. And I think we need to give grace to that sort of framing, because if everybody knew what the right thing to do was and is, we wouldn't be living together in the world that we are. We're all trying to, we're all trying to figure it out. And sometimes the intent allows us to figure out like what our impact will eventually be. So I think that my hope and aspiration for our collective community is that we continue to amplify voices. I, I love this. I love the interviews that I watched because of, of amplifying our stories and our voices and our experiences and not being ashamed of, of having a different experience or wanting to share something, some nugget with someone else. So I think that's key. I also think not to bend into the cynicism of the world. Mm. Um, I know that sometimes I end the day and it's very, it can feel defeating. Like you feel like you've done it all. You've done the good work and it doesn't feel like you got the reward for it. So just like stepping back from that and not being cynical. And the third is like, keep going, you know, do follow your passions, do what you want to do and have faith that you'll make an impact. That's great. We can make a shirt out of those things. <laughs> Don't bend and keep going. There you go. <laughs> this was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. I know you have a little one and um, we need to make sure that he gets the food he needs. <laughs> um, but I so appreciate your time and your wisdom. And I know that people are going to listen all the way to the end. Um, so thank you so much for joining AmeriCorps Connections. And for all of you that um, uh, listen to this, please share. I, I'm supposed to say this ahead of time and I keep forgetting, but share and like and subscribe and do all of the things that actually matters. It's very cool when I go onto the podcast um, on the back end and I can see that we're in like, like 10 countries. Like that is so cool around the globe. I know that AmeriCorps is an American thing, is a United States thing, but people across the the world are listening to these stories, and it's they're you know ultimately stories of impact and service and passion, and um, that's global, right? Like that's that's global. So thank you so much for um, those of you that have subscribed and and followed and download, and let's just keep it going, and and we'll have another interview next week. I've got like I said before, I've got the planes are landing. I can see the lights; they're all I've gotten a lot of interviews this weekend. So thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Take care.